0: Welcome to the Millionaire Next Door podcast with Robert Curtis, CFP, Accredited Investment Fiduciary from Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. In this podcast, we help successful wealth accumulators like you looking to transition to a work optional lifestyle by helping you build strategies for growing and maintaining your wealth. Robert draws from years of experience and fiduciary responsibility and interviews guest experts to help you build reliable strategies to grow and maintain your wealth. Now, on to the show.
1: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. Today, we have an educational discussion. We wanted to go over what are called 1031 exchanges what are these if you own any real estate investment type real estate you you may have heard of this you may be familiar with it or maybe totally new to you we we find it's of significant value to a lot of folks that have appreciated uh, or highly appreciated investment real estate from a tax deferral standpoint we've developed processes for this and i wanted to bring on a guest uh, he's a member of our my team and our research team, they do a lot of work in the space finding the best solutions in the country. He's Joe Carey, Chartered Financial Analyst, CFA. Uh, he's an alternative investment specialist, and uh, he's joining us today. And We're going to dive into that topic and hopefully educate folks. And uh, Joe, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, that's a, a great background. I'm uh, the Alternative Investment Specialist at SEIA, uh, which just means I focus on our due diligence process, underwriting, uh, and monitoring private assets uh, across the investment landscape.
1: That, that's great. But before we go into 1031, would you mind, Todd, I just came from what's called the CASE Alternative Investment Conference. We spent three days in Beverly Hills. It's really an interesting world. I mean, we we heard from this Mike Pompeo. He's a former Secretary of State, and he was the what was he? He was the Director of the CIA. Let let us know that we were in a pretty safe, secure spot. I I didn't even think I was at risk, but that was good to know. But you know, we heard from a a guy who's largely owns a portion of the Dodgers, the Lakers the premier soccer league you know we're dealing with alternative investments it's just such a different world for this high net worth endowment we do a lot of work in that space you're you're charged with with really delving in and coming up with a great platform don't don't know if you want to make a few comments on that and then we'll go right into 1031s but a good opportunity yeah ha-
2: happy to you know alternatives broadly often come with a connotation of lack of transparency expensive or uh, hard to access. And while some of those are true, it's, it's sim- uh, the easier way to think about uh, private assets is to simplify uh, the investment landscape between debt and equity. Uh, if you boil down in the public markets, public equity is, is stocks. Uh, and then private or public fixed income is uh, your traditional bonds, uh, high yield, et cetera. The private assets fall under those two verticals as well. So if you want to be invested in equity, there's private equity. So these are businesses that aren't trading on exchanges, but are still well capitalized, uh, well running sound businesses uh, that need financial capital in order to grow and succeed. And same goes for the debt side. It's it's very similar in terms of credit exposure, meaning that it's a, a premium for the, the risk taken for investing uh, in risky assets, which is all assets are considered risky outside of uh, generally government T-bills. But really, in, in simply, in, simply put, there, there's a lot of commonalities between public and private markets. A lot of the differentiation just comes into that access and some of the underlying characteristics.
1: OK, perfect. And maybe we'll have you back to go into that, because that's a really exciting and emerging world. It's been out there, but especially where we're at, you know, with the economy and it, it's a pretty safer bridge. And a lot a lot of folks we work with haven't really been invited until now to participate in that type of thing. It's always been some exclusive thing that they didn't qualify or know about. But we we've kind of developed some processes Um Pivoting right into what what the topic of the day was, um, do you want to talk to us about? Give us an introduction to the ten thirty one exchange program. What is a ten thirty one? Who's it work for? Just tell us. Tell us what's going on there.
2: Yeah, no problem at all. So ten thirty ones are a actually a long dated tax code that's actually dating back to the the mid nineteen hundreds. Um, so it, it's been around for a very long time. But ultimately, what the the IRS was intending to do was allow for uh, investors in in real estate uh, assets the ability to um, sell and relinquish property, but reinvest those proceeds over time or or follow on, invest those proceeds and do so without um, having a tax burden on that initial sale. So ultimately the, the, the mechanics of a 1031 are rather simple. You're buying and selling real estate and what the the tax code does specifically is allows for a deferral and the realization of, of capital gains taxes. If an asset were to appreciate, but also as is very traditional in real estate markets, there is a, you can write down assets over time through a depreciation schedule. What this does is bring your basis down or your, your taxable cost, right? Uh, which again, in, inherits a larger gain on sale. So oftentimes without the 1031, if a uh, investor were to sell a property, there's a, oftentimes large embedded gains that would require a tax, tax consequence upon sale. So the 1031 program's designed to remain invested in real estate, long term, without paying capital gains, as you rotate between assets over time.
1: Yeah, that that's big. We we've had a lot of discussions with clients, you and I. So so, for example, uh, there's a gentleman in Texas. Uh, he's taken over his client of ours. He's taken over as trustee for his mother's estate. There's an apartment building or sort of a duplex. I think they paid about 200 grand. It's worth 600 grand. They're really tired of the maintenance. He's got a lot of other things going on. There's a $400,000 unrealized gain that if it was sold would be subject to uh, capital gains plus a lot of costs probably of some type of transaction. So we walked him through how that would work. You know, there's other examples. I'm bringing it up a lot. We we talked with another woman. They in Texas, they own apartment buildings in Milwaukee. So similar kind of situation. I'll let you continue on, but those are just to give people an idea of, you know, what's out there and the avoidance of these large large gains.
2: Yeah, Robert, you made a good point too on on who this might be applicable to. Again, it's it's generally clients invested in investment properties. And what really constitutes a 1031 exchange or or allows for eligibility for a 1031 exchange is what's called a like-kind exchange. Uh, That definition has expanded over time as recently as 2004 to really allow investors in any kind of direct real estate investment to exchange into a direct real estate investment. And that's an important clarification. So for for those that are sitting on the other side of the table thinking about how might this be beneficial to me, and they have a you know two family multi uh, two family rental property, or they have a, a land that they've been leasing, right? That's been generating income. These are different types of properties, but they fall under the, the category of for investment purposes. So under the current 1031 exchange rules, these both of these property types would be equally eligible for 1031 uh, exchange processes in that they were investment oriented uh, at acquisition and then you're remaining to be investment oriented go forward. Um, what really differentiates the 1031 space, and there, there's, there's many ways to do this for someone that's in, maybe on a new in the real estate investing journey uh, and is trying to take an active role in real estate management, they could use 1031 exchanges all on their own, meaning they work with the, the required professionals to go through the, the process, but ultimately they, they pick their next property, they manage their next property, and benefit from the tax benefits of, of rolling all invested capital and proceeds into the new deal. But there's also what's called 1031 exchange DSTs and what DSTs are, are these, a legal structure that allows for an external manager to acquire property on your behalf, manage the property on your behalf, but you get to roll your capital on a tax advantage basis into this program to basically relinquish the active duty. So there's really two avenues you can go. You can maintain active management or you can, or defer it to professional management at SEIA. We tend to recommend a deferral m- mechanism, but that's uh it's very, it's, it's subject to suitability and, and kind of time horizon and, and goals. There's, there's many different facets that are considered and, And Rob, you know that very well. So just wanted to to point out that there's a couple different unique ways to use these uh, to your advantage.
1: Yeah, that's great. And in the cases I cited before, they didn't want to be actively managing. They didn't want calls from landlords. They didn't want to collect rent. They didn't want to pay property taxes, insurance. Uh, A toilet goes out. There's a plumbing issue, a landscaping issue. They just wanted to relinquish that and collect an income. And have it be passive. So that's a good fit. Yeah, yeah continue on. Uh,
2: yeah. On the on Go the ahead. back of that too, the the relinquish of active management ultimately serves the same goal of either outcome in that you're maintaining a long-term exposure to private real estate that is income producing. But when you relinquish the active management, you kind of relinquish the headaches and let your capital do the work for you. So really, it's it's a great solution for those that are looking to, uh, again, not not be as involved in the day to day and the leasing part, the leasing, the the rent collection, as well as the operating and maintenance of the property. But again, the the underlying exposure that you're getting through a DST 1031 program is still largely the same in that it's direct owned real estate that's income right. producing and of high quality. Um, Oftentimes, DSTs are formed to aggregate capital from a bunch of investors looking to invest in 1031s. What that really means is that by pooling capital together, the managers on behalf of the clients can acquire more expensive properties. Um, And in the real estate world, more expensive properties tend to Be in more desirable areas with supporting demographics for their particular uh, focus, whether it be life sciences or multifamily, but by purchasing these better assets, these or more expensive assets that tend to be of higher quality. You're getting, you're getting exposure that you yourself directly wouldn't necessarily be able to buy a property in that same category. So it's also uh, a unique way to. Take what success you've had in real estate to date as an active manager and roll that into uh, in a a continued part of your overall portfolio, but do so with professional management. Do so with higher quality properties that are would be much less attainable directly, and then on a, a separate layer is that then the management is done done for you. And these managers have, you know, long tenure often in managing these type of properties um, and owning the, these specific type of properties.
1: Yeah. So, you know, often I, I see where these pe- people want to exchange that property, but they're, they're sort of desperately looking because there's a, there's a very limited time window to identify a new property and they're considering some, property in a strip mall in kansas city or something that they may be some photos of but they don't really understand the area maybe there's a real estate broker trying to get that through versus the types of properties um, that are much more institutional right and and selected Certainly. through top level management maybe a life science data warehouse all over the country and you know diversified out but in regions that are growing and then you know, they have this limited time window. This sort of satisfies that because they can get into it. Um, can you talk about that? And then also the the income that can come off of these things and how soon does that actually start? You know, once, yeah. once it closes, I guess, yeah.
2: All right, yeah. So, you know, first thing, what you brought up, Robert, it's a really good point around the timing of these 1031 processes. And it, it is rather tight for investors looking to do a 1031 program, there's only 45 days to identify a replacement property for for this transaction to unfold. And, you know, for an average investor, that that's very challenging. So that's from, from date of close, you have to identify the next property you're going to invest in within 45 days. So you can either start that beforehand and hope, you know, hope everything goes as planned and you're able to get that done within 45 days. But if you're unable to do so, it becomes extremely, extremely stressful. You don't actually have to close on that property until 135 days following the identification window, but it it is definitely a difficult place to be in for your average investor. The way DSTs work on the other hand is they acquire properties prior to listing the 1031 exchange for external capital. And what that does is really, it it removes that identification problem from investors as they look to, to rotate this capital into a different asset. And another thing you asked about was the income that you can expect on these types of properties. And that would be, it's very subject to the underlying asset during the DST phase. Because you are buying cash flow, you have a cash flowing asset, and it's, it's that asset in particular, right? So it, it can change depending on um, if it's a life science building, if it's a distribution center, or if it's multifamily. But generally speaking, the way DSTs are set up is what they call a master lease agreement. And what that is designed to do is create stability in cash flow of the underlying asset, in which the manager is taking care of, again, all of the, the leasing, rent collection, all that. And then by having that aspect of the business coverage covered, they're using the master lease agreement as a grantor to the distributions from the property. Right now, we're seeing about a cash flow rate about 5 to 6% on average. And I think that's rather consistent in the institutional property markets. Yeah, I'm happy to happy to dive yeah. in more there or or whatever yeah. you think. Yeah, a
1: couple a couple other quick questions. Is that regular like ten ninety nine income or how is that? Or do you know?
2: <laughs> Fairly certain this is a K one producing income asset okay. class, and that's okay. given the private nature of of yep. Of the assets, the valuation process is not reg- uh, not as tightly regulated as you would see in the public markets. Yeah. That does not mean that it's it's uh, in, inferior or anything to that manner. It's just yeah. a different process for these types of assets. And what that takes is it takes more time to, to review. The real estate market in general, and as many real estate investors know, is a highly fragmented market, which creates... Some nuances in valuation. Sometimes there's not always a, a, a very good comparable property, or some of these other things. You know, maybe the transaction uh, activity has has been muted. So it's mm-hmm. it's a more complicated valuation process that translates to a longer time uh, until the valuations are are you know inked for for good, which ultimately translates to a longer uh, tax. Filing preparation process.
1: Okay, that and that's fine. I mean, there's a lot of tax savings that goes on here, so it's probably worth getting an extra return, and your your tax preparer can deal with that. I get a K one, so it's you know. Couple other thoughts. I want to talk when we had our discussion with the folks from Texas with the property in Milwaukee. Remind me if I heard this correctly. You were comparing to some of the other DST type stuff out there. But the processes we're, we're utilizing for our clients that we're making available, which are very, very highly vetted professional institutional type management processes. Did I hear you right to say that ultimately the costs, you know, ongoing of those kind of things that we're using might be about 25% or a quarter of what, what's typically out there if people don't go through processes like this? I don't want to. Yeah, Set I don't a think rapport. I put a, Yeah, yeah. What? What? Yeah. How does it compare? Let me ask. Let me ask you that way. Yeah,
2: you know, I think the, that that brings on a good point about the the variance in the quality of DSTs that are out there. Our business focuses on institutional managers that have breadth and scale, as well as uh, you know exceptional track records in in their core uh, market focus. A lot of DSTs out there are smaller smaller real estate managers that tend to be more more regional, which do, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but tend to be more focused on a particular area. So they, they lack flexibility in that regard. And their smaller nature tends to lead to higher expenses for them to transact. On average, I would say the... The more regional or smaller DST programs out there are more concentrated in their area of focus. It might only be one property, as well as the fees around them tend to be higher. I think on a comparison basis, we've seen some of the smaller DSTs with, call it a rough upfront cost of almost 10%. Uh, some of the more institutionalized managers are are. Closer to one to two percent, maybe three on the high end, um, which is an ext- you know a large delta. So while you are getting a, a benefit in tax savings, right? If let's say a tax uh, rate on that gain is forty percent, and you're by deferring it, you're only paying ten percent. And, and a, with another DST program, it still is a a handsome trade-off. But long-term implications is there's there is principle that is lost to a, a substantial amount of fees. So we we want to orient ourselves with managers that are cost-effective in executing the program, um, and then again have the, have the the capabilities, the scale, and the resources to really execute on their desired plan.
1: Okay, yeah, that's what I was driving at. I think this is much more efficient. Uh, and lower costs and probably much higher quality. When you were describing sort of these these big expensive properties, and you 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 sort of brought me back to the game Monopoly. You know, I was thinking like, um, you know, those properties on the in the deep blue right next to the when you go <laughs> around go right the boardwalk. Those are really expensive, and the ones at the beginning of the board are really vermont and they're not and i just remember from days of playing if when you start accumulating if you could control those and get hooked that's how you probably win the game not by the the low-end stuff so it kind of made me think a little bit of an analogy around that but uh hey, hey one other totally pivoting here this is tax deferral right like for example um someone paid two hundred thousand dollars for a property it's worth 600 now there's 400 in gain that all gets deferred. But let's say one continues to defer that out. And then ultimately in someone's estate, someone passes away. Is there then a step up in basis, you know, in a trust where really there's no taxes due and it jumps to to current market value somewhere down the line? Is it, can you ultimately defer it out until there's a step up in basis and, and assets are passed free from, um, you know, capital gains?
2: Yeah, so thus far, we've really just focused on the differences, you know, the information or the background about 1031s as well as how to get into them and the time around that. But what we haven't really uh, focused on is the impact that that has on the back end or for towards the later, further along in the investment's life. And you bring up a really good point. This is a tax deferred strategy until there is either sale of ass- sale of the asset, or to your point, if there were a death and it were in a trust, there is a step up of basis, which would immediately remove all embedded capital gains previously that had been deferred, uh, which is an extremely beneficial wealth planning uh, tool and ultimately, one thing, again, you know, with our, our focus being on the front end of, of 1031s, what really we think is unique in the space and is allowed under the 721 code is what is called or was broadly referenced as like an upREAT transaction. And what that means is a lot of managers are using these 1031 programs to acquire assets that they ultimately want to have exposure to long-term. What they're doing by singling the asset out and allowing for 1031s is I think kind of like in the, like a friend lending out a hand, right? They don't have to do this, but you appreciate it. And they're doing so to help their clients and their investors defer that, that income, but ultimately what they want to do for themselves is put that property into their broader diversified pool of properties, where they're housed in their real estate investment trust, which is a conglomerate of private assets that get serviced and provide income long-term. Ultimately, what they want to do is the 720 exchange after two years of ownership plus to acquire that asset. And what that does for investors in the DSP it allows them to convert their ownership percentage into shares of the overarching REIT. And really, the, the only the complications of 721 are there, but to, to make it a little more simple, what they're doing is not a physical sale. So basically, they're acquiring the property without being a sale process, which allows for... a transfer of ownership again on a tax deferred basis. So now what you do is you have exposure to a broad pool of real estate assets and maintaining tax deferral, but also have uh, exposure again to a a larger pool of assets Mm -hmm. that creates Mm -hmm. more resiliency in your real estate portfolio. But also many of these REITs have liquidation Set up basically to offer it, you know, either quarterly, semi-annually, annually. There's a, a range of different varieties out there, but that allows uh, the investors to adjust their positions over time. You can realize small mm-hmm. portions of capital gains to kind of manage tax burden, or again, you can defer until death and have that large step-up in basis. But really, using a DST program that has a 721 optionality just creates more flexibility in the outcomes for investors. And we view that as a highly favorable manner to get it, maintain long-term exposure to real estate, but allow for dy- dynamic allocation, depending on, on client needs.
1: Right. I, I like your term dynamic allocation. Cause, cause what I'm thinking, if you own some property somewhere, um, and the reason I mentioned the step up, because, you know, there might be people in their 70s or 80s, you know, or 90s who own these things. And the reason they've appreciated so much is because they've owned it 45 years. You know, it wasn't like a five year type thing. For example, um, the couple we spoke with, they live in Texas that had the property uh, apartments in Milwaukee. Um, that's probably been a nicely appreciated because they've owned it for for many, many years, Uh, But who's to say going forward that's going to appreciate at the same rate or be as desirable as if if someone has an institutional type manager and they can look at opportunities across the whole country? For example, maybe warehousing or data in outside of Salt Lake City or a, a property servicing oil and gas outside of Dallas somewhere, you know, or a medical office building in palo alto california that kind of thing so you've got that active management i I think going forward and another point these folks a lot of folks have they've had this dramatic appreciation because they've owned the property so long maybe they've owned it 35 45 50 years and they're in their 70s 80s or 90s that step-up is is absolutely giant. And you're doing this in a very cost-effective way relative to, I don't want to criticize some of the other smaller ones that that you brought up, but it's a little bit more of the Wild West out, out there. And this is really a very sophisticated way to go about it. So th- those are just a few thoughts that come, come to my mind. But uh, I'll let you chime in there.
2: Yeah, no, I think the... Reason costs can get lowered for some of these more institutional products is really the scale that they have. They're leveraging a deep bench of internal professionals that are on the ground in these different target markets. They have a, a deep bench of of legal professionals uh, and other uh, asset managers that service the properties themselves. And by having scale, um, you're really able to invest across the country in these key areas without incurring added expenses as if if you were not to hop on a plane and, and go scour the market and let's call it rally north carolina right and look for some medical buildings like we would have to get hotels we'd have to got, buy flights and take time out yeah. away from work to do it by not having by having boots on the ground, you're able to do so without incurring all these additional costs and maintaining that flexibility to stay in in high, high conviction in uh, locations and assets. So yeah, we definitely view the institutional side of the 1031 exchange business as as particularly interesting. The assets that they acquire for the most part are, are core stabilized assets. What that really means is, again, that these are the the best quality, best location and and well leased. And in that construct, you're not necessarily making a bet on appreciation anymore or you're kind of removing the appreciation volatility you may experience in your own uh, real estate book that you're actively managing. Um, By taking out that that volatility and appreciation and focusing more on core real estate that is is more stabilized as well as more income producing that's more for lack of better words stabilized your the trade off is a is a much more robust allocation to private real estate in the long term again these are assets that you can't necessarily get exposure to on your own especially directly like you would through a 1031 exchange program, oftentimes these are assets that are housed in, in other re- public real estate investment trusts or private real estate investment trusts, which are often access constrained. So by using this pro- these programs, you're often able to get access to very, very high quality managers that are otherwise difficult to get overall exposure to.
1: Yeah that's terrific and and a big point i want to emphasize is we can have discussions ahead of time with this we we were on the phone you know with the folks from texas had the property in milwaukee another texas client who's just taken over for his mother's estate i had two conversations yesterday yesterday with a um a person who's retired, but her and her partner ran a ran a business in Glendale, California. They own the building; it's worth a couple million dollars, highly appreciated. They're thinking of selling it next year. I said, "Why don't we have a discussion about a 1031 for the tax deferral?" That you know, just we'll walk you through on a very personalized basis. Another discussion with the gentleman um, yesterday owns an investment property in San Luis Obispo, California. Same kind of thing. And this guy is a pretty good sized property owner. He says, oh, really? You can do that? I didn't know that. I said, let's let's have a discussion about that, John. So um, we can have these discussions ahead of the time. The folks in who owned the place in Milwaukee were actually closing like this week. Uh, I followed up. They actually had a deep conversation with their CPA and they chose to. They're going to sell that and realize the capital gains. But that's in concert with their tax professional. They told me we own several other properties. So we'll 100% keep you in mind for all these and we'll have discussions. So we can think that through. We can bring in legal experts, folks like that, you know, without sending you a bill, we can pre-plan it, let you know. Do you have any other, do you want to give maybe an example or two as we start to close out and then also cover any other big sort of points that haven't been covered that you think are should be mentioned, Joe?
2: Yeah, I think, I think you, you brought up an excellent point. These are somewhat complex in nature. You are talking about ownership of your property, but also you're thinking working the tax system and, and tax code to have a favorable outcome to remain invested in real estate. But to do so, uh, I, I want to drive home that point as well. You really do want to have these conversations early. as with anything, tax planning should be handled. These are events that often put ha- have a lot of thought that go into them for the implications on you know the the current investors, uh, active ownership now what's their what's their responsibilities going to look like through managing the asset or and through the sale process what's their tax burden going to look like and having those discussions early again bringing in experts in these areas really helps instill confidence that you're in the choice being made to roll, roll or roll capital using a 1031 or relinquishing active management with a 1031 DST. Um, I think it's a great way to build relationships with clients um, from a financial advisor's perspective, but also for advisors to provide unique solutions that really showcase the, the breadth of, service offerings and how they can really help you meet financial goals. Um, from things we didn't cover perspective to be, to be eligible for a 1031. And this is the most, most asterisk statement I can make. You need to have what's called a qualified intermediary, uh, involved in the process of your sale sale. What a qualified intermediary is, is basically a specialized escrow agent that ensures that the handling of funds is in line with tax code to be eligible for the 1031. They do all of the work for you and it is a requirement to participate in 1031. So if you're thinking about that, get in touch with us or, and we can help talk through the nuances with that, but that's an extremely important point. If you were an investor that just sold a property, let's call it yesterday, received funds and did not engage with a qualified intermediary, you wouldn't be able to 1031. So that's again, points to the planning process around 1031 exchanges, as well as knowing the nuances and the complexities to make it happen um, from start to finish outside of that rob i think we really we we've provided a great overview of, of 1031s from a high level i would encourage you know further discussion in the space i think it's an exceptional uh, exceptional tool for deferring capital gains taxes on actively owned real estate or inactively owned real estate and i guess i i can highlight that quickly if you are in a 1031 now and that that 1031 is looking to sell their asset, and meaning it did not go through a 721 exchange process, those dollars qualify for another 1031. Again, because that definition is based off of like-kind investing. So really, it's a very flexible strategy. It's highly advantageous from a tax planning perspective. And ultimately, my view is, if you've been invested in real estate and you've you've seen the benefits of income and appreciation, odds are you continue to have a favorable outlook on having that as an allocation in your portfolio. This is a these ten thirty ones are just a way to do so at a tax advantage basis, but re, ultimately remaining invested in the asset class as desired.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great summary and. Please let us know, anybody who's listening or clients, if you have any use cases, we'll hop on a call. We spent close to an hour with the folks in Texas, you know, with the Milwaukee property. As I mentioned, they chose to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on taxes. I mean, after consultation, that's, that's great. If we can help you avoid that or, or just walk you through the process. Joe mentioned there are a couple ways to trip this up, not using the qualified intermediary. Let's make sure it's ha- it's not um, if it's handled by people who know what they're doing, it's you know, we'll do it the right way. If you don't know what you're doing, um, it's probably easy to mess up and that can be very expensive. Uh, so we'd be we'd be thrilled to have sort of a sounding board educational uh, discussion about it. It's so interesting to hear you say this has been around since the middle of the 19th century. Client asked uh, yesterday with an investment property, "How long have these things been around? Is this something the IRS even likes, or do they? Is this on their radar?" I said, "No, these have been around. I didn't know since the mid, you know, the middle of the fairway. This is not a um, extreme tax uh avoidance strategy. We're looking at it's pre- pretty darn vetted." Correct?
2: Yeah, this is this is pretty much a core core proponent of tax code for the last almost century, very, very time tested strategy, you know, regulation can always change. So it's, but in current form, it's something that we view as highly favorable and and has been highly used by, by the wealth, by those with wealth in real estate for a very, very long time.
1: Yep, and I I'm just about to close, but I do want to say you're you're absolutely right. Things can change. Tax code, you know, the step up is vetted right now. It doesn't mean it couldn't change sometime in the future. If so, if someone's seen dramatic uh, real estate appreciation, I would consider that fact that it's not. We have a pretty enormous deficit going on in our federal government. They may be looking to close that at some point. So just just beware. So. That is just so, so helpful. We'll get on a call together if anybody wants to explore this. Just another example of how we're trying to educate and assist clients. And uh, thank you, Joe. We'd love to have you back. Talk about some other alternative investment strategies and how that's helping folks. So really, really appreciate it. Thank, thank you so much.
2: No problem at all, Rob. It's been, it's been great and happy to provide uh, insights on the space. It's really it's a unique opportunity, in my opinion, to be invested in alternative assets as an individual, um, and they can have a meaningful impact on overall portfolio composition. You know, with with ten thirty ones being a a very unique solution within that purview. So, again, really appreciate having me on as well, and, and for the time today, it's been phenomenal. Yeah.
1: 100 percent. Thank you so much. And, and also to anyone out there, if the, you know, we'd be happy to have your CPA, your tax advisor on anything just to help make sure everyone's on the same page. So hey, make it a great day. Thank, thanks for being here. And uh, we appreciate uh, folks listening. And ho- hopefully this has been helpful.
0: Thank you for listening to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. Signature Estate and Investment Advisors LLC, SEIA, is an SEC registered investment advisor. However, such registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training and no inference to the contrary should be made. Securities offered through Signature Estate Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment Advisory Services offered through SEIA LLC, 2121 Avenue of the Stars, Suite 1600, Los Angeles, California, 90067. Telephone number 310-712-2323.